Welcome to the Bill Kelly Show podcast. My name's Rick Samprin. Hamilton councillors and staff kept secret a 24 billion liter sewage spill. We'll talk to the executive director of the Bay Area Restoration Council, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, shuffling his cabinet, and there are a few changes. We'll chat with David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent. And the Maple Leafs have fired head coach Mike Babcock. They have named Sheldon Keefe their new bench boss. We'll be joined by Sean Fitzgerald, senior national writer at The Athletic. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. An environmental shocker out of Hamilton City Hall yesterday. It's very shocking that this happened for as long as it did and that nobody realized that there was an issue there. That really raises a lot of concerns in my mind around uh, how frequently and and closely the city looks at the, the system. That is Environment Hamilton's Linda Lukasik. Uh, yesterday, the city of Hamilton confirming that 24 billion liters of untreated sewage and stormwater runoff was discharged undetected into Shadow Creek, which runs along the 403 and Akuts Paradise. Happened over a four-and-a-half-year period between 2014 and 2018 after a bypass gate from one of the city's combined sewer overflow tanks was left partially open. Now, the Ministry of the Environment has been investigating since the discharge was reported to its Spills Action Center in July of 2018, and the city could face fines and charges. And the city's also said it hasn't yet determined why the gate was left open by approximately 5%. Now, there's also word that a confidential report to council back on January 16th, along with a second one on September 4th, both obtained by the Hamilton Spectator, show that city staff recommended that details of the spill be kept secret from the public because of potential legal action, which could total up to $6 million. Dan McKinnon, Hamilton's GM of Public Works, was the senior director in Hamilton Water when this all happened, and he's quoted as saying, we're aware that the investigation is ongoing, and that's why we're not saying anything about it. Our first guest will have something to say about it. His name is Chris McLaughlin. He's the executive director of the Bay Area Restoration Council. Good morning. Thanks for joining us in studio today. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. Maybe we'll start with Bark. What's it all about? What do you guys do? Well, Bark was started in 1991 by citizens as a standalone agency of the Hamilton Harbor Remedial Action Plan in order to principally monitor the implementation of the plan. So monitor the actions of the agencies, keep track of the projects, like upgrades to wastewater treatment, for example among many others, and to report those to the public. Our role has grown uh, tremendously since then in the area of public engagement and public education. So to the extent that we're on schedule this year in 2019 to involve more than 17,000 students in our school programming and events. And that's great. And they get to learn about, you know, what, what makes the world go round in terms of water and environment and all that kind of stuff. Most importantly, they learn about their connections to water and so that their lives are more complicated than just turning on the tap and flushing the toilet. Right. How that water gets processed in one way or another, both coming to their homes and going to their away from their homes. And, and what happens in the environments to the, the turtles and the fish and the other critters that they, that they love? Um, what happens to them when water is degraded, for example, and the importance of having you know, good, good operating functioning sewer systems uh, in places like Hamilton where having a really effective functioning sewer system uh, is a, and, and keeping all this waste out of the water, it's a bit like trying to bite your elbow. I, I do sympathize <laughs> with analogy. Hamilton water on that. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's no mean feat, really, to, to, uh, to ensure that all of this waste is contained, particularly in old cities like Hamilton where we have combined sewer systems. Mm-hmm. That's where there's one pipe under the old neighborhoods of the city that carry both the stormwater 
and the sewage discharge from, from homes and, and buildings, right? So it's no problem they're engineered for the consistent flow of people on average flushing their toilets more or less, you know, um, on average. But it's when we get those intense storms that fill that pipe and then the, the overflow has to go somewhere. And the city's built a number of tanks and, and other features of the sewer system over the years to hold some of that overflow that would have at one time just gone straight into the harbor um, to hold that back until the storm passes and it can send that waste then to the wastewater treatment plant. So let's dive into this uh, latest incident or this incident. It, it's not really uh, uh, new because it happened a number of years ago, but for four and a half years, uh, there was basically a, a sewage discharge into the Shadow Creek, a uh, bit of a head scratcher. Yeah, it's a bit hard to understand how something like that on a piece of infrastructure could go uh, undetected for so long. Um, there are Throughout the sewer system, there's there are any number of, of leakages and whatnot. You just get this as part of an old system, right? And part of the problem with Shadok is, as you've probably already reported on over the years, uh, this illegal cross-connections to many of the homes where the the toilets discharge into the into into surface water rather than to the sanitary waste pipe. Um, in this instance, though, this is a piece of city infrastructure, and uh, it's it's the whole story of how this could go on for so long is is obviously very disheartening, and we'll be looking less, I think, to the past. Notwithstanding, we're really anxious to get our hands on the on the ministry's uh, investigation and exactly what went wrong. But we'll be more interested, I think, in the city's response to all of this moving forward and the things that they put in place. So one of those responses, at least from from this citizen standpoint, is that there should be some annual or semi-annual or biannual uh, or quarterly checks on on these sorts of discharge areas, right? Absolutely. Um, let the record show that I am drinking <laughs> Hamilton tap water. Uh, at the moment, I have a glass of it here that I'm sipping from. Um, the tap water, it comes from Lake Ontario. Uh, Hamilton has excellent tap water. And the quality of that water coming here, out of the tap at, at your home and mine, that's highly monitored, right? Uh, from a minute-to-minute basis, they're monitoring water quality. Um, to ensure its safety. Uh, These discharges of wastewater from the sewer system through what is a gate, uh, one of these discharge points in the combined sewer overflow tank, um, they're not as monitored, and some of them aren't monitored at all. Um, Interestingly, the the issue of monitoring and the price of the equipment to make these changes and whatnot came up back in January. interesting now that it came up in January, now that we know that this first report from staff went to council at that time also. But at that point, Brad Clark moved a motion um, that we were really happy to see. We've been uh, talking to the city uh, quietly for a couple of years prior to that about monitoring sewer overflows, monitoring when bacteria escapes out into the environment, uh, much like the city of Kingston, for example, has recently done. in order to make that uh, make that next step in in transparency and accountability, right? Um, it's not a fix, but at least people know, and that's an important piece of the puzzle. Um, Brad Clark's uh, motion at council was to for staff to go back and report to council on what would it take to monitor all of these um, uh, uh, discharges of waste into the environment, and then to report on it. Uh, the the response from Hamilton Water at the time was, I'll just warn you, it's going to be expensive. It's the same thing that they've been telling us for a couple of years, not surprisingly. 
But I think maybe this changes the nature of that conversation now. Um, it will be seen as more uh, as more of a necessity than a, than a nice to have, hopefully, um, and so that we might get a better, clearer indication of the problems that exist out there. And uh, another thing that we'd like to see the city do in response to this is a more proactive searching out of what else might be a problem. Like Portia Oak Creek, honestly, it is one of the most maligned urban waterways in Ontario. It's it's just been so degraded over the years by, you know, we've talked about a couple of different sources now from, from individual homes, from the sewer system, from the 403 that crosses over it in several places, runs along it. Um, it, it is so, you know, down and beaten and battered. Um, I think a more proactive investigation upstream would be a really welcome thing. It's something that uh, RBG, Royal Botanical Gardens, and ourselves, who w- work closely on water quality issues, we've been doing some of this in the background and are preparing a report on this right now. Um, but we'll be doing that in collaboration with our partner agencies like the City of Hamilton. So we'd like to see some of that uh, reciprocated in terms of, you know, ha- there wasn't a lot of collaborative PR on all of this, and, and, and we like to encourage that, right? Bay Area Restoration Council, the City of Hamilton, and all of the other partner agencies in the Remedial Action Plan, we all have different, very different mandates, obviously, but we all share the same goal. And so, while I was I was a little disappointed with the city's press release, it was a little underwhelming and seemed a bit self-congratulatory under the circumstances, to be honest. Um, I was far more impressed, though, with Dan McKinnon, the General Manager of Public Works, his remarks in the paper yesterday. Um, you know, I've known Dan personally for many years. And, and I can totally imagine those things being heartfelt, right, that he takes this personally and that it's really gut-wrenching to staff as well. They get up in the morning and they want clean water just as much as I do um, and anybody else at Bark and, and anybody else across the community. Um, but I think it's, a, you know, hopefully this is a, is a good learning opportunity as we were discussing earlier, right, the, uh, the city departments work in such siloed environments, right? Y- you're not concerned with the afternoon drive show, you're only concerned at 9.30 with, with your show mm-hmm. the next morning, right? And so they're concerned with their individual mandates. And to get them to work collaboratively, co- collaboratively um, within City Hall is, is tricky enough. Um, to get them to, you know, to get collaboration throughout the community is, is, is challenging. But it's one of the hallmarks of the, of the Hamilton Harbor Remedial Action Plan. It's been one of its key features of the last 30 years. And we don't see that changing. Um, we see that actually, hopefully, you know, out of bad things come positive steps yeah. and hopefully the city and, and the rest of the rap community like like ourselves um, can, can rally around some of these problems and put pressure put pressure where it's needed in order to get the funds to move some of these things forward like pu- public notification of of overflows. We got a couple more minutes with uh, Chris McLaughlin here in studio. He's the executive director of the Bay Area Restoration Council. Does this incident not shine a spotlight on other potential incidents that we don't know about or haven't been told about? So that's exactly what I think I was I was getting at yeah. that that there are probably there there not probably there are lots of areas where not just sewage but the stormwater issue in particular which is another thing that's going to be coming back to council in the near term um, and that is the issue of charging a rate for stormwater to generate the dedicated funds that are needed to go into what's called green infrastructure so getting away from from the rigidity of a system that's built out of concrete and dealing more effectively with water where it falls all across the watershed. So like in my yard and and in your yard and in our driveways and in parking lots and so forth, that's going to be a key piece of the picture as well. 
because unlike this one, you know, this this one signi- very obviously significant, more than significant. I, I don't mean to downplay it at all. The number twenty four billion doesn't escape escape anyone's uh, attention, right? And that's just gross, and and everyone knows that. But we have so many other. Uh, non-point source, that is like not just a pipe that you can point to, but diffuse sources all across the watershed where rain falls and carries contaminants, oils and other other materials from vehicles and whatnot, uh, phosphorus that feeds algae, for example, carries all of that into surface water downstream to the harbor. We have a lot of work to do across the watershed, not just in Shadow Creek, in order to remediate all of these problems. And yeah, I didn't, I don't want to downplay yeah. the the issue that we're talking about right now whatsoever. Um, it's, it, I think it will prove to be a really signature event in the in the history of remediation. It's a, um, but it is in the past, right? And the real tragedy for the city, from a PR standpoint, for for all of us involved in the remedial action plan, all of us who care deeply about trying to change public perceptions uh, of the harbor is that this incident has really made what is an uphill battle a whole lot steeper. And so that's the really, for me, the profoundly disappointing thing this morning to face is the idea that our jobs just got so much harder because, you know, where you've got this sort of contamination all over, you know, anywhere in any watercourse, lake, river, you have it, you know, people are outraged. But often in Hamilton Harbor, you know, you can't swim here. People are like, meh, well, Hamilton Harbor, you know, Mm -hmm. which is no. No, flat, flat that out, no. It's, no, it's, that's totally not acceptable. It's not acceptable here any more than it's acceptable in, in some, you know, lake up way up, up north in Algonquin Park, for example. It's not acceptable. Um, but, w- but what's most important for us as a partner of the city in the remedial action plan is trying to find a way to move forward to get the funds to work on the pro- to identify the project and then identify the funds that are going to fix the things that are still broken. And I hope out of this um, that notwithstanding the damage that's been done generally to to uh, to public perceptions and the tr- and, and the trust and the confidence in the city of Hamilton, because it'd be a real shame. I mean, the hundreds of millions of dollars that have been invested in wastewater treatment uh, at the at Randall Reef, for example, the sewer overflow tank. Uh, system that's been installed over the last 20 years, hundreds of millions of dollars. And so much of that goodwill, right, and, and, and downright, uh, you know, celebration, uh, d- things deserving of celebration have been undone by things like this. And uh, the real tragedy is that all of that bacteria, all that waste has now been washed away. Yeah. It's long gone. And we're left, you know, the city is left holding this little bombshell that blew up on them yesterday. From a PR standpoint, could they have been more proactive? I think you know, when you're called down to the principal's office, if you fess up, usually the punishment is lesser. That's notwithstanding. I'm not an environmental lawyer. I didn't advise the, the, the city to withhold that information, but it's understandable. When you're under uh, an investigation by the province's uh, investigations branch or the Ministry of Environment's investigations branch, and you hire a good lawyer and you're advised to keep quiet, um, typically that's, that's good advice. We got to leave it there. Uh, Chris, thanks for coming in. Uh, great uh, insight into this situation, and hopefully from a bad comes something really good. I certainly hope so. Thanks for the invitation. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau unveiling his new bigger cabinet, 36 ministers as opposed to, I believe it was 33, and there's some changes as well, the most notable of which. Christia Freeland's new post, she moves from Foreign Affairs to become Deputy Prime Minister at Intergovernmental Affairs 
minister. We only have a few minutes with David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent. So let's bring him on air now. David, how are you? Good, Rick. How you doing? Not too bad. Uh, big surprises here? Uh, there was a few, I suppose, yeah. Not the one that Christian Freeland gets uh, you know, a central starring role, essentially, in Trudeau 2.0. Uh, she had been pretty much uh, his strongest performer, mostly because of her central role in bringing home the new NAFTA. And when I say bringing it home, it's home. It hasn't been ratified yet. It hasn't been ratified in Washington. It hasn't been ratified here. So still some work to do there. We'll know what's going on in Washington, and there's a you know, whole uh, school of politics down there happening that could affect uh, the new NAFTA. And, of course, that's really important to our manufacturing sector uh, to make sure that that gets uh, brought home. So she's going to be involved in that. So that wasn't much of a surprise. I do think, though, that... Uh, you know, we've created a lot of new jobs that I really don't know if they're cabinet positions or they're rewards or what. We have a Minister for Middle Class Prosperity. Honest to God, that's the title, Minister for Middle Class Prosperity. It's a woman named Mona Forche. She's, uh, she's an MP here in Ottawa. We have a Minister for um, Diversity and Inclusion and Youth, and that is Barty Chagger, who's uh, just up the road from you guys in Waterloo. And we have a minister of digital government, I'm, like as if analog government is, you know, watch out, your days are numbered, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, and that's Joyce Murray from Vancouver. So I guess those are some of the surprises, you know, that the liberals did lose a million votes compared to 2015. They lost a bunch of seats. We've got a minority government, and the cabinet's bigger. It's got 36 people uh, in it. And uh, so, uh, you know, there you go. One of the biggest, if not the biggest, themes the incoming minority government is going to be challenged with is Western alienation. We've heard this term. How did yesterday's shuffle address this? Well, I, I, I think that's we're going to have to find out. I mean, Freeland, again, is, is, is she's also got the title, in addition to being Deputy Prime Minister, Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs. Now, she represents a downtown Toronto riding, but much has been made in the last couple of days, the fact that she's born in Peace River, Alberta. So she's a born Albertan. Hasn't lived there since she was a teenager, but still, uh, we'll see. She's, she's the one who's going to have to go out there and make uh, Premier Kenny in Alberta, Premier Moe in Saskatchewan, make them happy. The Prime Minister also appointed uh, a special advisor to, on the prairies, and that's Jim Carr. And Jim Carr was in cabinet. He's a Winnipeg MP, and he, too, was a very competent cabinet minister, but he right now is fighting a type of blood cancer. So he is taking treatment for that, and he's out of cabinet, though he's got this special advisor role. So those are the two positions essentially aimed at the West. Um, but, you know, again, if you, if you look at this cabinet, I think politically uh, this is a liberal government looking to the next election, wanting knowing that if they want to get back to a majority, it's not going to be by winning seats in Alberta or Saskatchewan. It's going to be by winning more seats again in Quebec. So there's lots of uh, Quebec ministers. There's, uh, I think, a grand total of 11, including the prime minister, uh, seven of which are from Montreal. And then Toronto and the, 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 the GTA did very well. In fact, I, I'm just thinking, if I think about it, um, you start there in Ancaster, where Philomena Tassi is the labor minister. You move, you know, go east, move right next door to Burlington. Karina Gould gets a big job, is the international development minister. Keep going east, you're in Oakville. And a new MP, Anita Anand, is the new minister for public works and procurement. That's a very big job. She's a uh, former University of Toronto law professor. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the sort of the golden horseshoe there, not doing, uh, not doing too bad at all. I know you got to go uh, in a minute. Uh, we have uh, 60 seconds left with David, a uh, David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Uh, you mentioned Quebec and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau naming uh, Pablo Rodriguez, the new House leader, and mm -hmm. I guess he's going to be Trudeau's Quebec lieutenant, so to speak. 
Right, and so, again, that's important politically, again, that uh, Pablo will have some work to do to counter the rise of the Bloc Québécois. I mean, they're back. And uh, also to deal with uh, the Quebec Premier uh, of the CAQ. They're sort of a nationalist uh, party, not separatist, but nationalist. That's Francois Legault. But for everybody else in the country, Pablo Rodriguez's job as the government house leader is really important because he's the one who's going to have to negotiate with the Bloc or the Conservatives or the NDP to sustain the government's legislative agenda in the House. That's a very important role in a minority government. Pablo's been around for a while. He was uh, here in Ottawa during the minority governments of, uh, of um, uh, Stephen Harper. So he knows what, what happens and what can happen. And as I say, he, you're going to hear his name a lot in the next couple of years. Pablo Rodriguez from Montreal, the, uh, the government house leader. David Aiken, appreciate the time today. No problem. Have a great morning, Rick. Cheers. YouTube, David Aiken, uh, Global News Chief Political Correspondent, unleashing his wisdom on the Trudeau cabinet shuffle from yesterday and yeah a bit of a promotion for this woman i will truly and faithfully and to the best of my skill and knowledge execute the powers and trusts reposed in me as minister of labor that voice sounds familiar doesn't it yeah it's hamilton west ancaster dundas liberal mp philomena tassi that david spoke about so she yesterday sworn in in a ceremony at rideau hall as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's um, new Labour minister, moving from the Minister of Seniors to Labour, which, ah, you got to figure that is a promotion. She's going to oversee uh, unions and the Labour movement. So a big thumbs up for a local MP. And uh, for Minister Tassie, now a bigger portfolio, and I'm sure she will do some uh, wonders in that area. A few key ministers that are not moving from their posts, and this is always interesting to see as well, because, you know, this um, speaks to the stability of a cabinet. You can't change everyone. It's like having a board of directors. If you want to change a couple of board of directors here and there, okay, that makes sense. If you work in a factory, you're not going to change all of the higher-ups or all of the people that, you know, make the big decisions or handle uh, you know, the the big tasks at hand. So those ministers that are not moving include Finance Minister Bill Morneau, Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan, Veterans Affairs Minister Lawrence McCauley, Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bibeau, Innovation Minister Navdeep Baines, and Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Carolyn Bennett. Now, two ministers have been removed from Cabinet. That can't be a good feeling, because it you know, we think, wow, did I not do a good job? Jeanette Pettipot-Taylor out as health minister. She's now the deputy government whip. And Kirsty Duncan, also out of cabinet. She was the minister of science and sport. She becomes the new deputy leader of the government in the House of Commons. So still important posts, but not as high profile and not as demanding. And yes, it comes with a smaller paycheck as well. Other big changes. Francois-Philippe Champagne moves from infrastructure to take over from Christopher Freeland at Foreign Affairs. So while Freeland is still going to be overseeing you know, the finalization of the new NAFTA deal or the USMCA or COSMAS, it's called here in Canada, Champagne is going to help in that regard as well. Patty Haidu is now the Minister of Health. Ahmed Hussein becomes the Social Development Minister. And newcomer Mark Miller is the Minister of Indigenous Services.
There's your wrap-up on the Trudeau Cabinet Shuffle. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, as I wrote in my blog today at 900CHML.com, this news nearly broke the internet. The Maple Leafs firing head coach Mike Babcock. It wasn't an easy conversation to have and it wasn't uh, pleasant. Um, uh, Days like today are not, uh, but it was what we felt was um, important for the club and something once you realize that there's something that you uh, should do and have to do, then it's best to act on it. That is uh, Maple Leafs president Brendan Shanahan. Babcock's uh, Leafs stumbling out of the gate this season, 9-10-4. They're two points out of a wild card spot. They're on a six-game losing streak. They're just not playing well. So Babs is being replaced with 39-year-old Sheldon Keefe, who was in his fifth season as head coach of the AHL's Toronto Marlies. Here's Shani again. There's a lot of work for Sheldon to do, and there's a lot of work for the players to do, and they understand that. But we really believe in them. We believe in the players that we have here. Uh, We believe in Sheldon, obviously, in uh, making this decision. Um, and so we're still optimistic that we're going to get it back on track. Now let's bring in our next guest. His name is Sean Fitzgerald. He's the senior national writer for The Athletic, and he joins us now. Sean, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Rick? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, There seems to be some fans, some NHL pundits who are surprised by the announcement, and there's uh, maybe equally, if not more, that are not really surprised that this news came down yesterday. Where do you sit? Um, Well, I mean... It's surprising that they did it on this road trip, I think, that, um, you know, just trying to think logistically uh, that you need to get your new coach out uh, to Arizona in in not a lot of time and and to coach his first game away from home. But on the other hand, um, if you're going to coach your first game, you might want to do it away from the glare of the Toronto media um, and, and doing it away from home might work. But, you know, in terms of, you know, is it too early in the season? I think the pressures of the modern salary cap and the realities of how long a competitive window stays open in the modern NHL, that you know, every week or every month that passes, when you believe you're in the middle of that window, um, that's more magnified. and The intensity is, is just that much more, so you really can't afford to wait like you might have been able to even five or ten years ago. And in the three-point NHL uh, nowadays, that it's, it's uh, you know, in many instances, much harder to climb the standings if you have fallen back uh, too far too quickly. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, they're not, it's not like they're, they're in the draft lottery position right now, but, um, with everything that's happened and, and with the way that they've played that, you know, there is some sense that, you know, speculation, I guess is the proper word that, that Kyle Dubas would have maybe preferred to make this change before the season that if you remember back to, you know, the, the end of season, uh, exit meetings, the exit interviews uh, with the media that, that Kyle Dubas left Mike Babcock's future open just a little bit to question. And that, you know, perhaps back then he was ready to make the change because Kyle Dubas didn't hire Mike Babcock. He was there um, before he was installed as general manager. Whereas now, I mean, Sheldon Keefe is Kyle Dubas's guy. They go back, they, they won the Calder Cup with the Toronto Marlies. They go back to the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. And, and I think that, that there's a comfort factor that, you know, Kyle Dubas believes Sheldon Keefe is going to deploy the resources that he's been given in the way that Kyle Dubas envisioned when he set this roster up. Where or when did this all go wrong? 
Well, I mean, injuries are one thing, um, but, you know, this team hasn't been playing really well for, for quite some time, dating back to, to even last season. And, you know, it really, at this point, you can point to a potential disconnect between the coach and the general manager, that, that Kyle Dubas believed the game should be played one way, and that Mike Babcock, who, I mean, not that it needs to be pointed out, but he is a very good coach. You don't get to 700 NHL wins by luck. Um, but he believed that the game should be played in another way and, and maybe valued, you know, players that, that, you know, at this point weren't being provided to him and were, was trying to, to fit players who were suited to another style into the way that he wanted. So, you know, Mike Babcock is very self-confident and believes in himself. In fact, earlier this week, um, talked about, you know, betting on himself. Um, that's worked a lot. It, it didn't work here. And, you know, when, you're working and your boss doesn't like the work you do, change is going to come. We're chatting with Sean Fitzgerald. He's the senior national writer with The Athletic here on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill. Uh, as you mentioned, you know it's no secret that Babcock is stuck in his ways. He's been successful because his way has worked for a long, long time. Um, so I'm not, you know, I'm rather reluctant to say the game has passed him by because I don't think that's, uh, that, that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. But did the players tune him out because they didn't want to play that way anymore? That's something that really only they can answer. I mean, you can make inferences uh, as much as you want. I mean, certainly that they had a 6-1 loss in Pittsburgh uh, last week that, you know, the, if you're looking for, for narratives to build into that, you know, did they have jump? Did they have intensity? Did they have the things that you want to look for, that you want to build into um, to say, well, they're playing for their coach. They're playing to save their coach's job. Um, you could probably go back and look at those highlights and, and ask those questions of, you know, was this a team that really understood the gravity that they were placing their coach into in terms of job security? Um, losing the room, I mean, maybe. I mean, they, there was that, you know, very well-reported tension between Mike Babcock and and his, you know, one of his stars, Austin Matthews, that necessitated two off-season trips um, by the coach to visit his star in Scottsdale, Arizona, um, to talk about the way things would work. Um, so, yeah, I, but the thing is, is that, you know, the famous line is that, you know, the Montreal Canadiens only like Scotty Bowman one day a year, and, and that's when they got to pick out their Stanley Cup rings. <laughs> that's a great point. Uh, Babcock and the Leafs had uh, three great regular seasons, but didn't have any playoff success. Is that going to be Mike's legacy in Toronto? Um, I mean, it depends on how this all plays out. His legacy, certainly, you know, as an active participant, uh, hasn't played out. But, you know, if this team was to turn it around um, and, and go off on a run and, and maybe win a, a round or two or three in the playoffs this this spring, this coming spring, then maybe his legacy is that, you know, he took a team that was a laughing stock. Like when he arrived, this team was awful, historically bad, even for Toronto. Um, and, and he, you know, he took them, he took this young group and he built them and he took them to 100 point seasons. So if they are to turn it around and win, maybe his legacy is that he's a guy who came in and helped lay the foundation for the success that followed. One of the questions already being asked is how long will Mike Babcock be out of a job? Do you expect him to jump? to a team this season or is it going to have to be and this is just me thinking out loud a team that is uh high on its uh expectations for the year but is not performing well and that might take maybe a year maybe even longer 
Well, he's on an eight-year, $50 million contract. I know that's, I mean, that pales in comparison to the one that you've signed at CHML, Rick. So, I mean, maybe the question would be that... It's in the shadow of the monolith of the deal that I signed, yes. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So, you know, should something ever happen there, would would you want to jump on the airwaves somewhere else? Or would you maybe want to bask in the glow of, you know, having cash $25 and with another $25 coming on? I don't don't think he's going to be in a rush. Um, as Pierre Lebrun, um, Pierre Lebrun with the Athletic, uh, got a hold of Mike Babcock yesterday on the phone and and suggested that you know the next few months at least are going to be spent working on his skiing and his hunting and his relaxing with family. Um, anything beyond that uh, remains to be seen. But you know, again, with a coach with that much experience, with I mean the highest, most pressure-filled situations you can imagine. I mean to say nothing of Toronto, but. You know, the Canadian Olympic team, you want to talk about nationwide pressure and the success he had there. I wouldn't be surprised if you saw him on a bench um, in the, you know, not too distant future. I don't see him taking over a rebuilding team, though. He's going to have to go, in my opinion, to a veteran laden team or or a team that has some veterans and it's on the way up. And a team that, you know, might have a roster that would be you know, more suited to, to the way that he likes to play. And, and that could be, you know, the grinders that he keeps talking about. He loves the, the high motor guys, the, the guys who might not have this, you know, the otherworldly skill necessarily without those other um, assets to complement them. Which is what he had originally, or at least maybe starting in season two and maybe even in season three with Toronto. You know, the Leo Komarovs come to mind. You know, the, the, the guy isn't highly skilled, but he gives, you know, a million percent on every shift. Well, and I mean, you can even take a look at, you know, a name that's come up as, you know, maybe they didn't really fully appreciate what they had until he was gone, but but Ron Hainsey, former Hamilton Bulldog, Mm -hmm. um, you know, was here. I don't think you'd call him one of the most skilled defensemen in the league, but he did a lot of things that Mike Babcock appreciated, and he was rewarded with a ton of ice time. And now that he's gone, um, that defense doesn't look quite as steady as maybe it should. Sean Fitzgerald is a senior writer, senior national writer with The Athletic, joining us here on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill. Let's talk a little bit about Sheldon Keefe, because uh, you know, diehard Leafs fans probably know a little bit about him, but this is going to be his first NHL coaching head job, or head coaching job in, in uh, the NHL. It just happens to be in the biggest hockey market in the league, and he's taking over from a future Hall of Fame bench boss, so I guess the message is good luck. Yeah, I mean, the benefit here is that he has familiarity. He's not, you know, coming in from an out-of-market. That He's been here. He's been understudy in so many ways. That You know, Rico Coliseum, Coca-Cola Coliseum now, it's it's a very short cab ride from Scotiabank Arena. So he would be well aware of the situation he's getting himself into. And more than that, I think think the, the number is something like 13 Leafs on the active roster have played, you know, have gone through... Sheldon Keefe's uh, tutelage down in the American Hockey League. And, and above that, he knows he has the absolute full backing of his general manager because they do have that history going all the way back to the Sioux. In fact, you know, there was a, a video clip of, of Kyle Dubas speaking at a conference that surfaced on social media last week. And, you know, it was an undetermined origin or date, but he was talking about, you know, his time at the Sioux and how you know, 20 games into the season, the underlying analytics. So, you know, those are the numbers beyond just the goals, assists, and points. Um, they weren't they weren't so hot. So they made a coaching change, and they brought in a guy named Sheldon Keefe. And for the remainder of that season, um, the analytics just took off. There was better puck possession. That means, generally speaking, more shot attempts. Um, and that, you know, by the end of the season, they're in the top three of the league. So um, certainly for Kyle Dubas' sake, he's hoping that can repeat. 
Um, but from Sheldon Keefe's perspective, he would have the confidence of knowing that he knows the roster intimately because he's worked with a, a huge section of it. And he knows what the general manager wants and he knows the kind of roster that's been assembled for him. So apart from wins and losses, what kind of team are we going to see under Coach Keefe? Well, I mean, he'll be more player-friendly, I think. Um, there'll be a bit more of a back-and-forth, but I think what you're going to see is, is maybe those offensive skill players unleashed a little bit more. And I would not be surprised if, you know, you know when Mitch Marner gets back and is fully healthy and you get those, you know, those big four um, going, you know, with, with including Austin Matthews and John Tavares, um, that you're going to see them getting a lot more minutes in a lot more situations than you might have under Mike Babcock. Safe to say, if this goes sideways, that Dubis and Keefe are in the same boat and may have to drift ashore a little bit. Are you suggesting that hockey fortunes in Toronto could go sideways? Uh, they usually do. I've never heard of that. <laughs> 1967 was in that. Oh, wait, no, it was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's always the thing. Um, and that is the challenge, that this isn't a team that's rebuilding. This isn't a team that's building to something. This is a team that is something now. Whatever it is will be dictated within this season and the next because, you know, you are in, as the least, a very difficult salary cap situation now. It's not going to be any easier moving forward. There are more players who are, you know, coming up in terms of needing new deals. Um, the, the window to win is now like starting this spring. So if, if it goes sideways, you know, if it continues to go sideways, um, the pressure is going to be, you know, more firmly on the young general manager and also on the players on the roster. Right now, I would suggest that the spotlight is more on the players because the GM has made his move. The head coach is out, a new guy is behind the bench. Now the, the I think most of the pressure is on the players as opposed to Keith or Dubis or anybody else. Yeah, and there's always a baseline of pressure that, you know, yeah. if, if you're not of a certain characteristic, would just be miserable. Like, if you think about living in Toronto and playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs, there's not a place, generally, that you can go where you're not going to be recognized. And, and you can do your best to, to avoid media, but it's going to find you, especially because everybody has a phone that is a push notification or a, a friend texting saying, oh, my goodness, did you hear what this person said about you? Um, that is an everyday thing. So, you know, that pressure isn't going to be new. Like Morgan Riley's not going to see or feel anything that's going to rattle him that he hasn't already felt 10,000 times before being with this team. Um, but yeah, like the focus is now going to be on, well, you know, you guys as players have a coach that will put you in positions that you're more comfortable with potentially. If you don't perform now, then that's going to be on you. Any player movement that you can anticipate over the next, let's say two weeks? It's going to be difficult because the Leafs are right up against the salary cap, mm-hmm. um, and, and there are still injuries. There are still key players working their way back. I think the, the thing that to look for now is how do they look differently on the ice? What you know, schematically might they look like? If you're, if you're a real sort of a hockey nerd, so to speak, that you know, how do the zone entries look like? How do you know, the lines and, and how are they juggled? How do they look different? And, and how do the ice times for especially those big-name players, how does that change now as the Leafs look to shift gears and, and hopefully, you know, for their sakes, um, get back on track? Uh, last one for you. Uh, President uh, Brendan Shanahan and General Manager Kyle Dubas are going to address the media in Arizona at uh, 12.30 Eastern time. What do you expect to hear today? Well, I think you're going to expect to hear a lot of, you know, some of what you've just mentioned here that, you know, Mike Babcock, sad to see him go. He's a good coach. 
um, time to make a move. And that the, the focus is now going to be, you know, what can this group do now that it has, you know, potentially, you know, Kyle Dubas's guy behind the bench and, and, you know, what can they reach as their full potential? Because you have somebody on the bench who is fully in line with the vision the general manager has for this roster. Sean, as always, great chat. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.